came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As always, I'm so grateful to be here with all of you this morning. Um, we are wrapping up Ephesians chapter 2 today. And Paul has been unpacking a lot for us in this chapter. So by way of review, we're going to walk through some of the images that will hopefully be familiar to you if you joined us last week. So no matter what story you're telling, and God's Word tells the most important one that's ever been told, it is always critical to start at the beginning. When God first created Adam and Eve, they existed in perfect relationship with Him as well as one another. No walls, no sin, no hostility, nothing but perfect harmony and peace. But all of that changed in Genesis chapter 3. Because Adam and Eve chose sin, a dividing wall was created that they were utterly incapable of removing on their own. That barrier separated them from God and put them at enmity with each other. And we already learned from the first few verses of Ephesians that we're born with that dividing wall firmly in place, dead in our trespasses and sins. The story from Genesis 4 onward is how God worked to overcome our sin and make reconciliation with Him and one another possible. He chose a man named Abraham. He drew him to himself, and out of him, he created the nation of Israel. And it was to the Jews, the people of God, that he gave the law, which set them apart from the rest of the world and put into great detail what God required of them to be holy as he is holy. And it was extensive. We learned that for that period of redemptive history, because they were God's chosen people, they had significant advantages over everyone else. I mean, you can't read the Old Testament without running into example after example of how God blessed them in incredible ways and even supernaturally intervened on their behalf at times because He was enduringly faithful to His promises to them. And that wasn't the case for the Gentiles. In Paul's words, the Gentiles at that time were far away from God, separated from Him and from the Jews by that dividing wall of the law. But the good news of the gospel is that that is no longer true. Christ came to perfectly fulfill the law and die on our behalf, rising again to eternal life. It is because of His shed blood that Gentiles have been brought near. Through his accomplished work, Christ removed the dividing wall of hostility forever. And now we are all, Jew or Gentile, offered new and eternal life by grace through faith in Christ's shed blood alone. That's where we ended off last week with the good news that Christ came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. It's no longer through the Jewish community and the law that we come to God. It is through Christ alone that we have peace 
and are reconciled to God and to one another. God makes us one, a whole new community called the church. And that's what Paul goes on to further explain. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this is the we of the gospel. You know, we are so quickly and easily, we, we, we make everything about ourselves. It's all about me, myself, and I. But it's clear that God saved us as individuals to make us a community together. We're saved not so that we can go to church, but that we might be the church. This is why Christ, call, Christ followers are called into meaningful relationship with one another in order that we might be partners together in the gospel. And that's why every one of us needs to own and embrace these 12 pillars Christ saved each of us to make us one body, part of the community of faith called the church. None of us are lone rangers, and all of us have a role to play. Good works God prepared in advance for us to do, just as Paul wrote a few verses earlier. So here in these verses in Ephesians, we're reminded once again that all of this has been accomplished for us by and through our triune God. For through Christ... We all have access in one spirit to the Father. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But each member of the Trinity has a distinct role. Through Christ's shed blood, we all have access in one spirit to the same Father. Do we grasp the magnitude of this? That we are allowed to know and approach God every moment of every day. That through faith in Christ, we have unlimited access to the throne of the King of Kings in prayer. He welcomes us. He sees us. He knows us. He hears and answers us according to his perfect wisdom and will. It is incredible. Paul continues... So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. So Paul's talking, again, primarily to the Gentiles here, bringing them full circle from what he had previously written. Recall that he reminded them that as Gentiles, they were the ones who at one time were far off, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But that's no longer true. They were no longer strangers and aliens. So to be a stranger is basically to be a foreigner in a foreign land. So unless you travel frequently or have lived overseas for a significant amount of time, most of us don't really know what that's like. But being, uh, imagine being in a place where you're not home, 
you don't speak the language, you don't understand the culture, you don't know anyone, you don't fit in, you're not a part, you stick out like a sore thumb. To be an alien really isn't all that much better. You live in another country, you maybe speak the language a little bit, you might have a work permit, you may, it may even start feeling a little bit like home. But nonetheless, you are not a citizen. You do not share all the benefits that a citizen would enjoy. You still don't belong. You are an outsider. That's what it felt like to be a Gentile. That's what life was like for them before Christ intervened. But now, because of what Christ accomplished, Gentiles are fellow citizens with the saints. That changes everything. People are no longer defined by ethnicity, families of origin, culture, social groups, political parties, football teams. Those who were once far off are no longer on the outside looking in. Now, in Christ, they are fellow citizens in the kingdom of God with the saints. Same rights, same privileges, same access through Jesus to the same Father by the same Spirit. Not because of anything they had done. It is all because Christ chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be his adopted children. That's where Paul started all the way back in chapter 1. But that's not all. When you think being a fellow citizen with the saints is good news, they were even more than that. They were elevated to the most privileged position in the universe members of God's household. And that actually helps to make even more sense out of what Paul just referenced, that wonderful and free access to the Father that we have in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Paul's going to reiterate the same thing in chapter 3, again affirming that in Christ we have boldness and access to God with confidence through our faith in Jesus. So when Paul first introduced this brand new community called the church in chapter 1, he used the metaphor that the, the church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here, Paul says that in Christ, as adopted children of the living God, we become members of his household. And that's a metaphor that speaks of intimate access, closeness, relationship with the king of the universe our Father in heaven. And that is why the author of Hebrews can say that we are counted as brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus. And why Paul can say in Romans that we are co-heirs with Christ. That's what it means that we are all members of the household of God. So here at the close of this chapter, Paul shifts to a third metaphor. And that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning. He writes that as fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So just like a body or a household, this particular metaphor would have been incredibly meaningful to both Jews and Gentiles worshiping in Ephesus in the first century. 
So for the Jews, no doubt the temple in Jerusalem that we talked about last week would have, you know, would have immediately come to mind. And while the Gentiles in Ephesus would most likely have been ignorant of the significance and the architecture of that temple, they still would have been incredibly familiar with the notion of a temple, the temple of Artemis, a pretty magnificent structure in its own right, overshadowed the city of Ephesus, along with its religious life and economy. It's actually considered to be one of the seven great wonders of the world. So while calling the church a holy temple in the Lord is a great metaphor, it can also be a potentially dangerous one, and this is why. Our culture primarily thinks of the church in geographical terms, right? We say we're going to church, meaning that we're going to go to a specific location. We talk about maintaining the church, like when we fix the roof or we get new pavement. We might even talk about how beautiful the church is, its architecture, its stained glass windows. These are all ways in which the world primarily understands and talks about the church. And while none of those things is entirely wrong, we have got to be very careful to guard ourselves against any unbiblical thinking. Because ultimately, when Paul speaks of the church, which is a holy temple in the Lord, he is talking about us. We are the temple. In ancient Israel, the physical temple represented God's presence on earth. Now, it's us. I mean, just look at all the references to people in these verses. We have access. You are no longer strangers. You are fellow saints and citizens, members of God's household, the foundation of apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. You are being built together. I mean, Paul doesn't want us for one second to be unclear about this. We are the church. This building, though it is in some sense, you know, it matters, it's important, Ultimately, it's just bricks and mortar. We are the church. We are a holy temple set apart for God, a community of transformed people meant to reflect the character and purity of a holy God. You know, and just think about it. The Gentiles who at one time weren't even allowed to get close to the temple are now being built into one right alongside the Jews. So the first thing to note is that Paul writes that the apostles and prophets are themselves the foundation of the church. So there can be no true building without a right and solid foundation. It is indispensable in architecture and it is indispensable in life. The thing about a foundation is there is only ever one, right? You don't build several foundations upon each other. There is one foundation on which the entire structure stands. And the same is true for our lives. As Christ followers, with Christ as our cornerstone, we are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So that designation, apostles, refers to the 12 who received the Great Commission right before Jesus ascended back into heaven and Paul himself. They were the ones who were personally commissioned by the risen Jesus to be witnesses and ambassadors of the gospel. So the New Testament apostle had the same kind or level of authority as the Old Testament prophets. 
They declared, whether in speaking or in writing, the inspired and inerrant word of God. So we can approach both the Old and the New Testaments with confidence and full assurance that we are reading the very word of God. So basically, Paul is arguing that the church is built on the foundation of the first century apostles and prophets to whom Christ revealed the full inclusion of the Gentiles, right along with the Jews. Throughout, or throughout the Old, uh, I'm sorry, though, although the Old Testament prophets knew and proclaimed that God was going to bless the nations, they didn't have the specifics They didn't have the fullness of revelation that the New Testament apostles and prophets had through the Holy Spirit. So Paul affirms here that the church of Christ is firmly established. It is built upon the solid foundation of the inspired revelation given through the apostles and prophets, and that's now what makes up our New Testament. It's vitally important that we understand the implications of this. In our postmodern relativistic world, we do well to remind ourselves that the church of Jesus Christ is founded upon and rooted in the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative teachings of Scripture alone. The church has one foundation, and that is why we will never stop preaching verse by verse through God's word here at Four Mile. We must never stop studying it, hearing it, talking about it, praying through it, thinking deeply about the truths of God in order that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds and obedient to all he commands. The church is built upon the foundation of the gospel proclaimed and preached by the apostles and prophets, but the most crucial of all the foundation stones is Christ himself, the cornerstone. So Paul isn't placing the ministry of the apostles alongside Jesus as if they were somehow equally as important in the foundation of the church. In referencing, uh, referring to Christ as the cornerstone, Paul is likely referencing Isaiah 28, 16, where it says, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. So the importance of a cornerstone in first century architecture cannot be overstated. The cornerstone was the stone by which the rest of the structure was tested to determine whether it met the builder's specifications. So I'm not going to lie, I don't really understand how, but apparently you can extrapolate and calculate the dimensions of the entire building from the dimension of the cornerstone alone. It was not only the first stone to be laid, but it was the one that defined the shape, size, and orientation of the entire building. So we can learn three things about Jesus from this. First, he alone defines the church. Jesus is the the one who determines exactly what the church should be like, what it should look like, how we are to function. So while the church's foundation is built upon the word of God, spoken through the apostles and prophets, all of it must be interpreted and implied in such a way so as we maintain the centrality, the supremacy, and the authority of Jesus above all else. He is our cornerstone. 
and he is the head of the church. Second, Jesus is the means by which the whole church holds together. You know, not just here at Formal, but all around the world, we are a group of believers from different backgrounds, different ethnic and social groups, different educational and vocational experiences, on and on and on we could go. And yet what we've been learning in Ephesians is that we are one body, one temple. In Christ, all of our differences take a back seat. As individuals made alive in Christ, He creates out of us one brand new community whose identity is through and through Jesus and Jesus alone. And third, Jesus is the one who grows the church into a holy temple. And so we can look at this in two different ways. First, any numerical growth that we might experience, all the glory goes to Jesus. It will only be because Jesus, the cornerstone, is working in our midst and advancing the gospel through us. Jesus adds to his church, not us. And second, Jesus is at work growing us as people in maturity and holiness. So I was thinking about the building process. And today, fitting stones together is fairly, uh, from what I understand, fairly an easy thing because there's mortar, which is that stuff in between the bricks, right? And it, it like fills up all the cracks and stuff, whatever. I don't know. Okay, but in Paul's day, there was no mortar. And so when you had these stones, they had to be cut so specifically and so perfectly so that they fit together. And you, you couldn't even tell they used to be two different stones, right? Like that's how detailed it had to be. And those stones represent us. So before we were made alive in Christ, like we were all these jaggedy-edged, sinful, ugly people. We're at enmity with God. We're at enmity with each other, right? It was a mess. But now we are being joined and built together into one new community, right? And so through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being sanctified, we're being transformed, right? He's cutting off all those jaggedy edges of sin in us, and he's making us more and more holy. So we're all in process. We get that, right? We, sit, we talk about that often here. None of us are who we were really created to be, right? We're, 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 we're getting there, we're getting there. But we're all still wrestling with sin, every single last one of us. But... The great news and the hope of the gospel is that as we all continue to take our next steps toward Christ together, though we're going to maintain our uniqueness as individuals, we're all going to come to resemble Jesus more and more. We're going to be perfectly fit to him, our cornerstone. And that's what's going to allow us to be joined together in him right now, right here. I just think that's a profoundly beautiful thing. And I know sometimes when we look around, it's hard to believe it, right? We're like, I don't think it's working. But it is. It is, right? God is sanctifying all of us. And we're all at different places. And like, he is faithful. He is faithful to build his temple. That's what he's doing here. So let's read this in its entirety again. But I'm going to change the pronouns so that we feel its impact more personally. For through Christ, we all have access in one spirit to the Father, so then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him we also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
This was true for Christians who gathered at the church in Ephesus, and this is true of us. So I actually grew up at Four Mile Church. Um, I know that there are a few of you, more than a few of you in this room, who no doubt held me as a baby, which just is incredible to me, right? And you know what? I love that. I love the span of generations that are represented in this place. And I have no doubt that it is because of the faith-filled prayers of all the people who have come before us, uttered by the same Spirit, prayed to the same Father on our behalf, that we are who we are today, that we are, we are experiencing the blessings of God that we are experiencing today. And that's one of the reasons we have got to remain a praying church. We have who knows how many generations of people coming behind us, right? What a gift and a privilege it is to be able to pray for them, to be able to pray on behalf of so many others who are going to be built into a holy temple right alongside of us. I love being reminded that there were a whole lot of people who have gone before us, and there are going to be a whole lot of people who come after us. But in Christ, we are all being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Together in Christ, we are the physical embodiment of His character and His power and His purposes in the world. Just like God created each of our physical bodies, He created the church, the body of Christ a temple, that we might be his representatives here in this tri-state region. I mean, we need to get that mind-blown emoji back up here again, right? God takes little old me and little old you, people who were once dead in our sin, completely lacking any significant substance or stability on our own. He makes us alive in Christ, and then he unites us and builds us up to be a holy temple built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as our cornerstone. And he does it all through the power of his Holy Spirit. I couldn't resist, y'all. I mean, this, this community of people right here, built up along with all the other past, present, and future Christ followers around the globe, we are the dwelling place of God. Back in the Old Testament, and into the four Gospels of the New Testament, the temple was where people went to be in the presence of God. Now, that's us. That's us, church. The church is where God's presence is to be most clearly evidenced in us, through us. It is God's intention that his manifold wisdom and glory that we'll read about in chapter 3 be displayed in and through us. It is God's intention that his glory be seen in and through Four Mile Church. It is God's intention that his glory be seen in our lives when we're scattered and when we're gathered. So let's pray to that end, church. Heavenly Father, all of this is more than we can wrap our heads around all of this fills our hearts to overflowing. Your mercy, your grace, your love, your plan, your purposes. God, you are beyond description. What you have done for us in Christ is beyond measure. Help us to be people. Help us to be the people that Jesus died to make us be. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in us 
for what you're doing through us. Help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand that you might be glorified in all the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in response to this word today, we must ask ourselves, are we grounded upon Jesus Christ individually as well as corporately? Is his word the solid foundation of our lives? If we are to be the people through whom God now reveals himself to the world, are we living like Jesus? Are we taking up his cross and following after him? Are we ministering like Jesus, the head of the church? Are we praying like Jesus? Are we allowing his word to so fill our hearts that it just pours out of our mouths, building one another up in Christ and reminding us of what is most important? Are Jesus' priorities our priorities? These have got to be questions that we are continually asking ourselves, coming back, to the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus as our cornerstone. He alone is the foundation on which our lives are grounded and he alone is the architect and builder of who we are, the church, and all that we're meant to be. 